Last time we spoke about the aftermath of the Arway landing and the drive towards Sio. The Komori detachment did everything they could to bottle up the new American beachhead at Arway. Meanwhile, after the fall of Wario, the Australians decided it was time to drive towards Sio. General Katagili had just got his men to Sio, but would have little time to prepare defenses as the Australians were quick on their heels. Likewise, the Australians were also expanding past Dampu, seeing multiple patrols fan out, probing for where the Japanese were massing their forces. Back over at Tokyo, Hideki Tojo invited Japan's allies for the East Asian Conference, reiterating Pan-Asia unity against the West. Yet for all of the talk, in reality Japan sought to dominate its Asian allies, really as a means to an end. And over in Cairo, the allies held their own conference, trying to keep Chiang Kai-shek within the fold. This episode is The Landings at Cape Gloucester. Welcome back to the Pacific War Podcast week by week, and I'm your dutiful host, Greg Watson. But before we begin, I just want to remind you all that this podcast is only made possible through the efforts of Kings and Generals over at YouTube. Perhaps you want to learn a bit more about World War II? Kings and Generals has an assortment of episodes on World War II and so much more, so go give them a look over at YouTube. So please, subscribe to Kings and Generals over at YouTube and continue to help us produce this content by checking out www.patreon.com slash kingsandgenerals. And hey, don't forget about our sister podcast over at the Age of Conquest, the Fall and Rise of China podcast, written and narrated by me. And if after all that, you are still hungry for some more history, why don't you check out my personal channel, the Pacific War Channel over at YouTube. Over there, I'm going to be releasing a full documentary I did with Dave Holland. It's about many of the Medals of Honor earned on Guadalcanal during its entire campaign. Also, please check out my Patreon account at www.patreon.com slash the Pacific War Channel for more exclusive podcasts. If you want, give it a peek with a free trial. I think there's about 10 plus podcasts over there now. General Douglas MacArthur faced daunting challenges during the Pacific War. One of these challenges was in the shape of Rabaul, one of Japan's strong points from which he exerted force in the region. To neutralize Rabaul, MacArthur sought to seize some airfields in western New Britain, but to do this would also require securing control over the Vitaz Strait between New Britain and New Guinea. General HQ sought to use airfields at Cape Gloucester and on the south coast to help neutralize Rabaul. Thus, Operation Dexterity was born. It was to be the twin landings against originally Gazmata, but then for necessity changed to Arwe and Cape Gloucester. This was but a cog in the major plan within MacArthur's mind to return to the Philippines. One could argue, within a greater plan for the White House. But that's just me being slanderous. The landings at Arway were largely successful, and with that in hand, General Kruger felt his Alamo force could now launch Operation Backhander. The battle-hardened 1st Marine Division was earmarked for the landings against Cape Gloucester. It was to be their first action after a very prolonged period of rest and recuperation in South Australia, following their heroic campaign on Guadalcanal. The 1st Marines were now under the command of Major General Rupertus. You probably could not ask for better men for the job. They were well refreshed, physically, mentally, and militarily. They had acquired an enormous amount of experience on Guadalcanal, and with it a high degree of morale. The Marines began training with the new types of landing crafts available to them. 
things they did not have during the Guadalcanal days. Meanwhile, Kruger carried out a program of reconnaissance based on aerial photography, mosaics, older maps, and some amphibious patrolling. There were three Australian officers who played key roles aiding in the effort. The first was Major John Mather, AIF, a former labor contractor in the Solomons who had been attached to the 1st Division for the Guadalcanal campaign. He remained an integral component of the D2 section, where his proficiency with Pidgin English and a grasp of the native psychology proved most useful. The second was Sub-Lieutenant Andrew Kerwell Smith, RANVR, one of the versatile islanders who could turn his hand to nearly anything, and who had been a coast watcher in Cape Gloucester region at the time the Japanese first moved in. The third man, and one of the most familiar with the ground and inhabitants, was Reverend William G. Wideman who had been operating the Anglican mission at Sag Sag for several years prior to the war. And like Kerwell Smith, he was a commissioned naval lieutenant to give some military status to his present activities. A number of amphibious patrols was performed by the Alamo Scouts. The first patrol was led by First Lieutenant John D. Bradbeer, who set out for New Britain's western coast by PT boat on September the 24th. Around midnight, he cut the motors off on his PT boat around a mile off Grass Point as the scouts paddled over in inflated rubber boats, landing on the beach at the mouth of the second stream to the south at 1 a.m. on the 25th. After hiding their craft with great care, they proceeded inland through dense secondary jungle growth up the western slopes of Mount Tangi. There they found enemy defenses in the vicinity of Asaga. After this, they turned northward, heading through some heavy foliage to the upper Gimma River, and there they interrogated the inhabitants. The natives had been excluded from the Erdrome area and the coast since the previous July, but they did have some information to impart. There was a motor road connecting Ongaya to the Erdrome, and 12 to 14 anti-aircraft guns were in place between two points. There were radio stations located at Asaga, the Erdrome, Sakar Islands, and Rook Island. Barge traffic was quite heavy on the Itni River and along the coast. Relations between the native population and the Japanese had deteriorated to a low level, although a few Quislings still operated in the area. The natives related that the enemy expected an invasion of Cape Gloucester at any moment. Finally, they retraced their steps, and in the early mornings of October the 6th, the Alamo scouts climbed on board the waiting torpedo boat and returned to Goodenough Island to make their report. The next significant patrol was carried out on the night of October the 14th by Captain Money. It's a very interesting name. He was accompanied by two other Australians, a marine sergeant, and six natives as they went ashore about a mile south of Higgins Point on Rook, and they remained there until the early hours of October the 26th. Captain Money reported that there were just a few Japanese on the island, which doubtlessly influenced the later decision to defer a landing there. Shortly before midnight on November the 20th, two PT boats throttled down to a halt just south of Dwarf Point on New Britain's west coast. Eleven men aboard had the general mission of performing a reconnaissance of the beach for an offensive landing. But more specifically, they were to study beach approaches, beach conditions, and the inland terrain between Potney and Simaru. They were commanded by Major Mather. With plans carefully laid, the men stealthily made their way ashore. But luck under such conditions could not always hold up for them, as the Japanese became aware of the patrol's presence almost as soon as it reached the beach. Only 30 minutes after leaving the PT boats, they were back on board, but in that time, they had obtained enough information to declare the beach unfavorable for a landing operation. Another significant patrol occurred on the night of December the 21st, 
It was done to study two beaches at Tuali. Once again, Major Mather acted as the overall commander. Splitting the patrol into two seven-man groups, Bradbeer took the first on a reconnaissance of South Beach, while First Lieutenant Joseph Fournier of the First Marines took the other to look at North Beach. The patrols recommended the latter as more favorable of the two for a landing. It was duly labeled Green Beach, and the 2nd Battalion First Marines made its D-Day amphibious operation there. Such amphibious patrolling helped Kruger figure out exactly where to land. Meanwhile, the 7th Fleet had just come under the command of Admiral Kincaid and was assigned the naval responsibility for the Gloucester landing. Admiral Barbie would have at his disposal 12 destroyers, taking the USS Cunningham as his flagship, 3 minesweepers, 10 APDs, 16 LCIs, and 24 LSTs for the main landings. With another 2 destroyers, 14 LCMs, 12 LCTs, and 2 rocket DUKWs for the second landing at Beach Green on Tulali. Covering them would be Admiral Crutchley's Task Force 74, consisting of four cruisers, eight destroyers, and two rocket LCIs. Now, for some of you, do forgive me for reading out all the names of the ships, but I do get some comments now and then telling me to do so. The first echelon was carried by APDs Stringham, Crosby, Kilty, Dent, and Ward, with the 3rd Battalion 7th Marines. Then there was the APDs Brooks, Gilmer, Sands, Humphreys, and Noah, who would carry the 1st Battalion 7th Marines. The 2nd Echelon of 6 LCIs would carry the 2nd Battalion 7th Marines, and 4 LCIs for the 3rd Battalion 1st Marines. The 3rd Echelon was 7 LSTs, each carrying 500 troops of the 1st Marines, and 150 tons of supplies, escorted by the destroyers Drayton, Lamson, Mugford, and Bagley. The 4th Echelon was 7 LSTs, each carrying 480 troops of the 1st and 7th Marines and 150 tons of supply. The 5th Echelon was 5 LSTs, each carrying 240 troops of the 12th Defense Battalion and 250 tons of supplies. And the 6th Echelon was 5 LSTs, each carrying 250 Marine Engineers and 250 tons of supplies. For aerial support, General Kenny assigned Brigadier General Frederick Smith's 1st Air Task Force, FATF. The FATF contained about a third of all the squadrons in the Allied Air Force. It had flown fighter and bomber missions for all ground operations, excluding those in the Rambo Valley. To support the coming offensive, between November the 19th to December the 13th, 1,241 tons of bombs were dropped over Borgen Bay. For the next 11 days, daylight bombings were intensified with over 1,207 bomber sorties being performed, dropping more than 2,684 tons of bombs. Their favorite point of attack was known as Target Hill, because it was so easily discerned. Gun positions at the airstrip were also given some particular attention, with about 80 2,000-pound bombs being dropped on December the 17th upon them. A few direct hits were claimed on the gun positions. Bunkers and supply dumps protected from the view by the lush jungle growth were fairly safe from the aerial attacks, but the lines of supply suffered heavily. Daylight runs were not all that was performed. Simultaneously, the Allies introduced harassing night tactics as well, to keep the enemy under additional mental strain. You see, the Japanese anti-aircraft teams and pilots tried to sleep at night, but the B-24s would continuously drop bombs, grenades, and even beer bottles over bivouac areas just to keep them a little bit dazed. So you really got to imagine that. You're like sleeping one night, and then just a ton of beer bottles just fall over the area. It's actually kind of fratty if you think about it. 
On December the 21st, a final rehearsal was carried out at Cape Sudest. Three days later, Colonel Julian Frisbee's 7th Marines boarded Barbie's vessels at Buna Harbor. On Christmas Day at 6 a.m., the convoy was moving. At 4 p.m., the convoy rendezvous with Colonel William Woyling's 1st Marines at Cape Cretan, while the 2nd Battalion, reinforced with the H Battery of the 11th Marines, proceeded to Beach Green in their own smaller convoy. However, as they made their way towards their objective, the main convoy was spotted by Japanese reconnaissance planes. The convoy would arrive at its destination unmolested. Commander of the Southeast Area Fleet, Admiral Jinichi Kuzaka, had incorrectly assessed the convoy was bound for Arway, bearing reinforcements, and as a result ordered a heavy airstrike against the Arway area instead of Cape Gloucester. At 6 a.m. on the 26th, Crutchley's cruisers and destroyers began a naval bombardment, followed up an hour later with Smith's B-24s, B-25s, and A-20s. The 5th Air Force had tossed B-24s from Dobodura, who dropped their payloads all the way from Target Hill to Cape Gloucester. The B-25 medium bombers followed this dropping their heavier loads, and the A-20s focused on the landing areas, making sure to strafe the beaches until the first wave would be just 500 yards away. For the next hour and a half, the landing craft launched towards the beaches. Two LCIs outfitted with multiple rocket launchers led the first wave. By the way, if you haven't seen any videos of these rocket launchers on such things as landing crafts or other naval vessels, you should check it out. There is uh, not just old footage, there's actually colored footage now and it looks awesome. Check it out on YouTube. A considerable amount of smoke screen was set over the area, hindering some of the landing craft from finding their marks. One group carrying elements of the 3rd Battalion 7th Marines missed their beach altogether and they hit the shore some 300 yards further west. The 3rd Battalion, led by Colonel William Williams, landed at Yellow Beach at 746, with Lieutenant Colonel John Weber's 1st Battalion doing the very same at Yellow Beach too. The men charged down the lowered ramps of their LCVPs, seeing Marines find unmanned trenches, abandoned guns, and a handful of very scared shipping engineers cowering in some dugouts too stunned by the naval and aero bombardments to fight or flee. The Allies had achieved tactical surprise, as Matsuda was not expecting an invasion to come to these beaches. Major General Iowa Matsuda had deployed his 53rd Regiment around the Tsuruburu Aerodrome at Natamo Point. Storming forward, the 3rd Battalion reached a region known as the Damp Plat, which according to one Marine was, quote, was damp up to your neck. To the Japanese, this was known as the Swamp Forest, and it held some of the most treacherous terrain. Thus, the Japanese did not expect the enemy to come by it. The forward momentum was beginning to peter out as men were wadding through the thick mud, with vines tearing at their bodies. A heavy congestion hit the beaches, greatly hampering the unloading process. As the men advanced, trees literally fell around them, rotted to the core from the bombings. The first Marine casualty would actually be the result of a tree falling on a guy. Meanwhile, the 1st Battalion advanced towards Target Hill and Silamati Point. Company B seized their key evolution points by noon. Behind these men came the first echelon of LSTs bearing the 2nd Battalion, led by Lieutenant Colonel Odell Connolly. They beached their LCIs and drove straight inland some 900 yards through some mud and water all the way up to the center of the new beachhead perimeter on a patch of dry ground. At 2.30, after the LSTs were pulling out, a force of 25 VALs and 63 Zeros emerged at low altitude, who made a very fast bombing and strafe run against the beaches and the shipping. The back-and-forth firing from the Japanese aircraft and the Allied forces was quite intense. 
Information of FATF B-25s coming in at treetop level suddenly found themselves snarled up with the Japanese flight almost directly over the beach. Within all the excitement, two were shot down by friendly fire and two were seriously damaged before the gunners aboard the LSTs could cool their trigger fingers. Possibly because they wanted to jettison their explosives, or possibly because they mistook their target, the B-25s then proceeded to bomb and strafe the Samaldi Point position occupied currently by the 1st Battalion, 11th Marines, killing one officer and wounding 14 enlisted Marines. One war correspondent had this to say of the event. It was the most inexcusable small-scale blunder of the war. The Japanese attacked Barbie's vessels, covering the retreat of the first echelon of LSTs tangling with the Allied cap. The destroyer Brownson was sunk, destroyers Lamson, Shaw, and Mugford were damaged, and two LSTs were driven off. Thirteen valves and four zeros were destroyed. For the Allies, it was four fighters and three B-25s. Meanwhile, the 3rd Battalion was still securing its right flank, as Whaling's 1st Marines, supported by Sherman tanks, were coming up behind the LCIs. Their commander landed at 10.15, with a division command post in operation ashore within the hour, as the 1st Marines drove towards the airdrome. Lieutenant Colonel Joseph Hankins' 3rd Battalion ran into a roadblock held by Colonel Sumia. It consisted of four fortified bunkers with machine guns and a system of rifle trenches manned by the 1st, 2nd, and 1st Machine Gun Companies of the 53rd Regiment. The assault was quickly shattered. K Company lost its commander and executive officer in a matter of minutes. Everything seemed to go wrong. Bazooka rockets did not explode in the soft earth covering the bunkers, Flamethrowers malfunctioned, and an LVT carrying ammunition got wedged between two trees. The Japanese defenders were so amped up seeing the chaos, they rushed out of their bunkers trying to swarm the trapped LVT. They managed to kill the two men manning its machine guns, but the driver refused to lose his head and he skillfully drove the vehicle right over the nearest bunker, providing some cover for the infantry behind him to storm the bunker with grenades. The daring LVT maneuver allowed the men to take the bunkers steal victory out of the chaos. Behind them was Whaling's 1st Battalion led by Lieutenant Colonel Walker Reeves, who were bogged down in the damp flat. Whaling quickly changed his plan of advance as a result. He ordered his 3rd Battalion to advance in a column along the narrow shelf of firm ground, while the 1st Battalion covered their left rear, speeding up the progress. Yet as the 3rd Battalion moved out to expand their perimeter westwards, Sumia's men began infiltrating unoccupied gaps forcing Colonel Julian Frisbee to recall his Marines and wait for reserves to pull up. By nightfall, Frisbee's Marines had secured the beachhead. The landing was so well scheduled that the big LSTs began dropping their ramps on the beaches 40 minutes after the first assault waves had landed. By 1 p.m., they had unloaded and cleared the area to make way for the second echelon. However, close encroachment of the damp flat greatly curtailed the area available for dump dispersal and necessitated some hurried improvising by the shore party. According to an officer of the 1st Motor Transport Battalion, The true cause of the traffic congestion can be attributed directly to Army personnel who manned 150-odd 6x6 trucks with preloaded cargo. These drivers had been scrapped up from an artillery regiment in New Guinea, and supplied with salvage trucks into which had been loaded practically all with the supplies. The trucks theoretically were to discharge their cargo at the dumps, return to the LSTs that they had embarked from, and return to New Guinea for a second load. The plan failed in one respect. 
as there were no immediate dump areas to unload the trucks in due to the damp flat. It was decided to leave the cargo in the trucks until the dump areas were established. This caused consternation in the ranks of the army drivers, who consequently abandoned their trucks in an effort to get back on the LSTs. This naturally left 150 trucks stranded on the beach exits for quite some time. Eventually, the trucks were unloaded by Marines and proved to be a big aid to the transportation-starved organizations. So if you read between the lines, it seems that the Marines just stole a bunch of trucks from the Army. Meanwhile, Whaling's battalion set up their own perimeter for the night with both flanks on the beach, a technique they repeated each evening until the aerodrome was captured. Further to the west, Lieutenant Colonel James Masters, 2nd Battalion, 1st Marines with H Battery of the 11th Marines, codenamed Stoneface Group, landed at Beach Green at 8.35. By 10 a.m., they had established a perimeter. E Company held the left, G Company the center, and F Company the right. The H Battery unit was unable to emplace its 75mm pack howitzer satisfactorily on the rugged jungle terrain, so they reorganized themselves into three platoons of infantry and took up a mobile reserve at the front line. Stoneface's task was to cut off the coastal road. When Master's men looked around, they found the beach completely unoccupied. Numerous positions had been abandoned with their weapons. Master's figured the defenders must have fled to the hills during the bombardment, so he ordered patrols to fan out. The only contact made during that day was a small group roughly a thousand yards north of the beachhead near the village of Samaru, seeing a small firefight. Yet, unbeknownst to Masters, Sumia had sent a provisional unit consisting of elements of the 3rd and 4th Companies, 53rd Regiment, with the 3rd Battalion, 23rd Field Artillery Regiment to drive out the Marines via a secondary road east of Mount Talloway. The force was led by 1st Lieutenant Takeda, and it was thus called the Takeda Provisional Battalion. For Barbie, the first day saw 13,000 troops and 7,600 tons of materials landed on either side of the Cape. However, many men had landed in swamps so dense and deep that maneuvering out of such areas was going to be quite difficult. General Matsuda was well aware of this, and he seized the opportunity. Matsuda ordered Colonel Katayama to leave token garrisons at Asiga, Nigol, and Cape Bushing while he brought the bulk of the 141st Regiment to Magarupa. This would take until December the 30th to occur. Yet Matsuda had made one mistake. He thought he was facing just 2,500 men. How the 65th Brigade staff came to such a conclusion is unknown. Perhaps it was because of the smokescreen during the landings that had made visual observation limited. Perhaps the loss of Target Hill so fast into the engagement limited further observation of the enemy as well. The Marines had achieved tactical surprise by landing on undefended beaches, but other than that, they did not have all that much to do on the first day. Perhaps the lack of activity also factored into Matsuda's head. The only real fight of the day had been a brief affair at the roadblock, where the invaders, instead of throwing infantry frontally against some powerful bunkers in a glorious bonsai manner, had just awaited supporting weapons to knock out the position. Perhaps to Matsuda this spelled weakness or timidity or both. Regardless, like most Japanese commanders, Matsuda was obsessed by the then-current Japanese doctrine of annihilate at the water's edge. So he ordered his own major assault unit hurled in an all-out attack against the center of the invader's perimeter. 
Thus, instead of reinforcing Sumia's forces at the airdrome, or withdrawing forces to more defensible areas like Borgen Bay, or even waiting for Katayama's troops to arrive, Matsuda decided to make a very bold and daring attack directly at the center of the Marine perimeter with only his 2nd Battalion 52nd Regiment. At 3 a.m. on December the 27th, the Japanese attacked the sector held by the 2nd Battalion 7th Marines during one of the worst monsoon storms the Americans had ever seen. Because of the storm, many of the Japanese failed to find gaps existing on each side of the battalion's flanks. Thus, instead, the Japanese hurled themselves frontally against a very well-dug-in position. By 7 a.m., the surviving Japanese finally began to pull out. Matsuda's men suffered 200 deaths with over 100 wounded. The Marines suffered 8 deaths and 45 wounded. Added all together for the day, the total loss for the Americans was 28 deaths and 68 wounded. After Matsuda's terrible defeat, Whaling's battalions resumed their drive towards the airdrome. While they advanced in columns along the road, patrols were sent into the jungles to hunt down the enemy, but they encountered basically no resistance. The 1st Marines were able to dig in for the night after advancing some 5,000 yards. To the east, Frisbee's 2nd Battalion had expanded their perimeter towards the bank of Suicide Creek, where they would continue to face short and sharp attacks by Matsuda's 2nd Battalion. Despite the heavy punishment he was served, Matsuda continued to believe in his destroyer-at-the-water's-edge tactics. His men began constructing defensive positions, bunkers, trenches, rifle pits, and so forth, so close to the American lines the Americans could hear them doing it. Meanwhile, the engineers of the 17th Marines performed their own work, widening the Japanese coastal road to allow the movement of supplies. Despite their valiant work, the volume of traffic was immense. Coupled with the storm, it made the narrow coastal road a logistical nightmare. The next morning, the Marines expected to encounter some heavy resistance. The Marine artillery crews increased their rate of fire, and General Kenny's aircraft bombed Colonel Sumia's strongpoints. With tank support, Whaling resumed his advance at 11 a.m., with Company I finally hitting the enemy positions at about 12.15. They ran into a Japanese strongpoint consisting of a system of mutually supporting bunkers and rifle trenches, well-armed with anti-tank guns and 75mm guns as well. The way forward was littered with landmines and barbed wire. The defenders enjoyed an added advantage in heavy jungle, lying a short distance inland which limited the tank's field of maneuver to the comparatively narrow area directly to their front, facing the flank of the Japanese position, which thus became, in effect, a defense in depth for the entire extent of the east-west length. It was about 300 yards. At 12, I Company was fired upon with small arms from the front, followed by 75mm shells along the road area. Fifteen minutes later, the leading elements, led by Captain Carl Conran, began attacking the fortifications alongside the tanks. They were facing the 2nd Company and the 1st Machine Gun Company of the 53rd Regiment, and the strong point was quickly nicknamed Hell's Point. Later it would be renamed Terzi Point, in honor of Company K's commanding officer who had died during the landings. Within the heavy rain, the tanks surged forward and smashed Sumia's bunkers, while A Company dashed to the left, emerging from the kunai grass just 500 yards away from the bunkers. Enjoying excellent cover, the defenders' fire successfully stopped the American advance, although the Marines themselves also easily broke up two Japanese frontal assaults and one attempt to turn their left flank. Ammunition began to run low, forcing A Company to withdraw at around 345. Yet K Company closer to the beach held enormous firepower in the form of Sherman tanks that obliterated 12 bunkers rather quickly. In the words of Company K's commander, I was given three tanks, 
The other two were out of action, one with engine trouble and one with a jammed breach of its 75, to accomplish its mission. I put one squad of the 2nd platoon behind each tank and I deployed the 3rd platoon to set up a skirmish line behind the tanks. We encountered 12 huge bunkers with a minimum of 20 Japs in each. The tanks would fire point-blank into the bunkers. If the Japs stayed in the bunkers, they were annihilated. If they escaped out the back entrance, the infantry would swarm over the bunker and kill them with rifle fire and grenades. By the time we knocked out 12 bunkers, the 2nd platoon were out of ammunition and had been replaced by the 3rd platoon, and they too were out or done to a clip of ammunition per a man. I called a halt, and I sent for the 1st platoon. By the time the 1st platoon arrived and the ammunition was resupplied, 45 minutes had elapsed. We continued the attack and found two more bunkers, but the enemy had in the meantime escaped. The immense power of the tanks forced the defenders to retreat. During this action, the 1st Marines had suffered 17 deaths and 52 wounded, and they claimed that they had killed over 300 Japanese. The capture of Hell's Point enabled the Americans to establish a position at Blue Beach to reduce the distance for supplies. General Rupert's command post was also moved there by December the 28th. The next day, the American advance was delayed until the arrival of Colonel John Selden's 5th Marines. General Rupertus feared he might be outnumbered at the airdrome, so he played it safe. During the fighting at Hell's Point, a curious misadventure before Corporal Shigato Kashida of the 1st Machine Gun Company occurred. The trench in which he was defending suddenly caved in, burying him helpless up to the neck. An astonished Marine, observing Shigeto's apparently dismembered head blinking at him, paused to debate whether to shoot or shovel. The dilemma was resolved by the arrival of an intelligence officer who ordered the man to be shoveled out and made a prisoner. Shigeto painted a depressing picture of his battalion situation. He also mentioned the original plan for the 2nd Battalion was to reinforce the 1st, something that might still be accomplished. He also mentioned the presence somewhere in the vicinity of the 141st and the 142nd regiments, possibly within striking distance. Since Colonel Sumia had conducted withdrawals following every action to date, it could be presumed that a good part of his force remained intact. Thus, Rupertus was right in the belief the Japanese may have large numbers at the airdrome. The 1st Battalion under Major William Barba and the 2nd Battalion under Lieutenant Colonel Lewis Walt got aboard 9 APDs at Cape Sudest and arrived off Cape Gloucester during the morning. However, during the transit, there was a large storm that caused some confusion, leading some elements to land at Yellow 2 and others at Blue Beach. General Rupertus planned for the 1st Marines to continue their advance along the coastal road, while the 5th Marines would perform a wide sweep on the left flank to attack Airstrip No. 2. At 3 p.m. following the artillery and aerial bombardments, the Marines launched a fierce offensive. The 2nd Battalion 5th Marines attacked simultaneously with the 1st Marines along the coastal road, and both ground immediately inland. Major William Barba's 1st Battalion was struggling out of the swamp and jungle near the line of departure. The unexpected terrain difficulties, however, kept the plan from being carried out. Both battalions sent out patrols in an effort to establish contact, but a combination of darkness and unfamiliar territory prevented positive results. Supported by tanks, artillery, motors, and rocket launchers, Whaling's 1st Battalion successfully reached the eastern end of Strip No. 2 at 5.55 and immediately commenced setting up a defensive perimeter. The 3rd Battalion followed behind and extended the perimeter to the left, 
with Selden Second Baton arriving at 7.25 p.m., extending the perimeter around airstrip number one towards the beach. It seemed Colonel Sumia realized the futility of attempting a defense upon the open ground against American armor, so he pulled his units away towards Razorback Hill, from which they could launch harassment maneuvers against the new American perimeter. The Japanese had begun firing artillery and motors into the airdrome. The Marines, somewhat astonished by such ongoings, called for motor and artillery support of their own. They reported that, according to their best estimates, the enemy had reoccupied the defenses in at least a full company of strength. The Marines were formulating a plan to deal with the menace, and the Japanese took advantage of the lull time to launch a banzai charge that failed to gain any ground. The Japanese continued their harassment until the Marines received some tank support to launch an offensive. Platoons from different units got together to perform a sweeping maneuver, advancing 300 yards from the defensive line. They ran into bunkers, foxholes, and trenches manned by Japanese. The Marines mopped them up with grenades and automatic weapons. Then at 11.30, suddenly all the fighting ceased. No more enemies seemed to be remaining near the front. The Marines had suffered 13 deaths and 19 wounded, but counted 150 dead Japanese. With more tanks on hand, the Marines gradually pushed the Japanese to flee back towards Razorback Hill. Meanwhile, because of the repeated attacks, Colonel Masters' men had been patrolling, trying to pinpoint where the Japanese were concentrated. At 1.55 a.m. on December the 30th, the 3rd and 4th Companies of the 54th Regiment had discovered an excellent approach towards the Marine perimeter. As was always the favored Japanese strategy, to concentrate force against a narrow sector, they chose to attack at this place called Coffin Corner, a natural causeway connected to ridges. The two companies attacked under the cover of a storm. The Japanese unleashed motors and machine gun fire and quickly overran a machine gun position, but G Company launched a counterattack, pushing them back. That little battle raged for nearly five hours, but by 7 a.m. it ceased. The Marines had six deaths and 17 wounded, and they would count 89 Japanese dead, with another five captured. And that will conclude the actions for today at Cape Gloucester. For now, we have to jump back over to New Guinea. Back on December the 8th, General Nakai commenced an offensive against Kesawe, dispatching the Sado Volunteer Unit for the task. The unit had the aid of native guides who gave them detailed information on the terrain, allowing the Japanese to infiltrate behind a forward Papuan platoon led by Lieutenant Bishop. They exploded all of their booby traps, allowing the 1st Battalion 78th Regiment to advance behind them into Kesawe II without much difficulty, annihilating the Papuan platoon and securing the eastern portion of the highland. Meanwhile, the 3rd Battalion crossed the Boku River and captured Koropa, cutting off the commandos at Isaria. The 2nd Battalion, 239th Regiment, crossed the Boca River and assaulted the commando position at Ketopa. But the Australians resisted until nightfall before withdrawing towards Isariba. Nakai's enveloping maneuver was a success, forcing the commandos and Papuans to withdraw towards the Vapia River. On December the 9th, Brigadier Ether ordered A Company and C Company of the 225th Battalion to advance forward as the commandos pulled back towards the Mene River. Meanwhile, at 7.15 a.m. at Isariba, the Japanese had begun a series of attacks. The attacks were repelled with Vicker guns, grenades, and quick airstrikes from 20 Kitty Hawks and boomerangs that would bomb and strafe the attackers. The 2 and 25th companies arrived at Evapia, and one of their patrols managed to ambush several Japanese parties over the next few days. On December the 12th, Nakai arrived at Kesawe, where he ordered his 1st and 3rd Battalions, 78th Regiment, to attack the 2 and 25th positions by nightfall. C Company's machine gun fire managed to halt the enemy assault from the north, but another came from the south. 
A company found itself surrounded as the Japanese managed to get between the two Australian companies, firing their woodpeckers from multiple directions. It was a five-hour battle until the Australians repelled the enemy, who gradually pulled back west. At 5am on the 13th, the Australians were running low on ammunition and they were forced to withdraw. The 2 and 25th advanced through some very thick jungle and deep swamps. By 8am, they had managed to get to the safety after suffering 5 deaths and 14 wounded but killed an estimated 67 Japanese. The companies withdrew east of the Evapia River, rejoining the rest of their battalion. Nakai expected his enemy was attempting an offensive against Medang and ordered his men to return to their former defensive positions, leaving token garrisons at Kuropa and Kesawai. Because of all the heated attacks, General Vesey worried it was preliminary to something much bigger. So he ordered the 2 and 16th Battalion to perform a punitive attack along Shaggy Ridge and Ether's 2 and 33rd Battalion would retake Kesaway. The 2 and 33rd Battalion advanced under the cover of darkness to the 5000 amateur feature to attack any Japanese there and to move the Papuans across the Evapia to establish a patrol base for the Koban Kuropa Solar River area. With three of his companies, Colonel Cotton of the 2 and 33rd moved off an hour and a half after midnight on the 18th. He was moving towards the summit of the 5,000-amateur feature, arriving just before dawn. At 2.10, a section made contact with the enemy about 700 yards south of the highest pinnacle on the feature. The patrol withdrew while the artillery fired 120 rounds. By 5 p.m., the enemy had had enough, and they withdrew, enabling one company to occupy the pinnacle. The next day, the battalion patrolled the whole area, and they found evidence of Japanese occupation and a very hasty withdrawal. I would like to take this time to remind all of you that this podcast is only made possible through the efforts of Kings and Generals over at YouTube. Please go subscribe to Kings and Generals over at YouTube and continue to help us produce this content by checking out www.patreon.com slash kingsandgenerals. And hey, don't forget about our sister podcast over at the Age of Conquest, the Fall and Rise of China podcast, written and narrated by me. And if after all that, you are still hungry for some more history, why don't you check out my personal channel, the Pacific War Channel over at YouTube. Over there, I have just released a series on General Kanji Ishiwara, the mastermind behind the Mukden incident, and the author of the Final War Theory. It was originally a series on my Patreon. And speaking of Patreon accounts, you can check out mine at www.patreon.com slash the Pacific War Channel for more exclusive podcasts. And thus, the Allies had finally unleashed Operation Backhander, the amphibious assault of Cape Gloucester. The first marines had a long rest after Guadalcanal, they would now be the spearhead to reconquer New Britain. However, the Japanese were not going to just roll over easily.